0: I want to tell you a story, okay. but before I tell you, I want to let you know, I, I checked in with my friend. Um, I called her. Uh, she knew I. She knows I'm going to be talking to you about this today. Right. And then I was like, yeah, I haven't stopped thinking about the story you told me. And I told her why. And I said, I would love to talk to my friend about it. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. That's cool. And I was like, so you know about this podcast? And, and then she said, No, no, it was good. I think a lot of folks need to hear this.
1: Oh, okay, okay, good. I I
0: wanted to say that, and I also want to say that she's safe and in a a, a better space, but here's the story, enough (laughs) buildup. Okay. This is a podcast where two old friends, both Canadian, one black and one white, and both men, explore what it looks like to adopt the mindset of an inclusive society. Instead of asking, how do we get there? Jake and Chris discuss, what does it look like to act as if we're already there? Welcome to The Disorienting Dilemma. So she called me one day and she was quite upset. And it was following an interaction with police. And knowing the work that I do and the kinds of conversations I have about restorative justice and public safety transformation, she thought I should know about what happened. She wanted it in the back of my head as I'm in these rooms and having these conversations.
1: So before you go forward, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but for the listeners, uh, the work that you do, what was it about the work that you do that she felt like she could confide in you?
0: So I work in a university in a campus safety capacity, so really helping students feel safe on campus. So at at a really nuanced level of safety, but also more broadly outside of that work, connecting with justice processes uh, when things go wrong.
1: Right. Right.
0: So here's what she said. She was in a relationship for about a year and it was a lot of turmoil in that mm-hmm. relationship. It was up and down. And, uh, you know, she, she told me the story looking back. And so with a lot of clarity that, that she admittedly said uh, she didn't have as she was going through. So, you know, that, that said, uh, as she looked back, she said, you know, it was pretty toxic She recognized some signs early on. It wasn't physical Mm -hmm. uh, at the early stages, but it started to become a little bit more physical as it went on. She relayed that it started with a grab of a wrist and pulling close. And it was, she said that, you know, um, she excused it away, right? Thought, well, that was a one-off and he apologized. And it all culminated though. She never involved police. Uh, didn't feel like she needed to involve police felt that she was she was handling it and dealing with it and then one day uh, this person um they ha- they had a an argument and he started smashing things around the apartment threw through, through the phone flipped the table smashed the tv and started to get quite physical and she said get out we're done yeah. and every time that she had kind of gone there and they tried to break up in the past it the he kept coming back but in this moment she said I knew I was done yeah. and I was like you're done and I think he knew that I was done and so what he did at that moment is he did the thing that she knew would hurt her the most it wasn't the shove it wasn't the hit it wasn't any of those things that he'd done mm-hmm. he took her dog Max up under his arm oh. and he left the apartment he said you want me out I'm taking the dog right Yeah. she's full of anguish just uh, starts crying says don't take the dog Uh, take whatever you want just leave but leave my dog so she calls police yep she calls police and police show up and they see the smashed pictures and the cell phone that's destroyed and they see that her face is a little bit red Yep. and they say to her we're going to go arrest him he's going to be charged and she says, no, I don't, I don't want that, we're done. I just want my dog back. Yeah. And they say, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do about the dog because the dog is jointly owned. You're gonna have to figure that out on your own. But what we're here to do is to keep you safe. Right. And she says, but I, I, I just want my dog. Yeah. And in that moment, he gets charged, goes down a whole path of a court process that she said, I never wanted to go down. I knew that they were going to do that. In that moment of weakness, mm-hmm. I called police. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking uh, when I asked her these questions, you know, why did you call? What did you need? And how did it go? These are some of the questions that I'm always thinking about when I think about public safety transformation. Sure, yeah. And for her, it just wasn't a match. And she's like, when I told her that I was gonna bring this up, she goes, that didn't work for me right it works for other people happy it does but in this moment that didn't work for me because i still didn't get my dog back
1: wow yeah, yeah. so there was the incident and then she's got to feel a bit like a powerless victim to the system on top yeah. of the incident so it's just got worse it did it 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 certainly did and i
0: I actually don't think that that's a unique experience, sadly, right? Which is why I couldn't stop thinking about her telling me that story. And when she said, you know, I just wanted my dog, Max, killed me. I was like, because I got that. I, I, when the one thing that would represent safety and justice and the right thing for you in that moment, that customized
1: experience of justice was just not available to her in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. So that she went through the trauma of that moment and then she went through the trauma of the system. Yeah. Not really caring about what she needed or the nothing. There was a rule, the rule was broken, the law was broken and there are consequences and it's the police it's their job to follow through on a series of steps cuz they're culpable if they don't. So yeah. You know, this brings us to the whole defund the police or the policing or thinking about policing in a new way, which has been a hot topic, obviously, uh, here in the United States for the past year. It's been talked about for a long time. There's really nothing to do. People feel like, well, what, what are the options here? Because this is just the, the tip of the iceberg to a, to a, a massive conversation
0: yeah, it's it's the it's the very thing that keeps us from probably doing the massive change required to address the system, right. which is change the system. So the best we can sometimes even think about is the you know, we're limited that we can only glimpse what we think is possible, which is tweaks at the margins or or slight alterations to make the current system less harmful. Yeah. And and some of that has to happen. So it's it's actually two things happening at the same time. If we really want public safety transformation, that has to happen at the same time while we address, because that's going to take a lot longer to do. Yeah. We still have the responsibility to address the, th- the parts that cause harm right now. So you have to do both. It's not one can replace the other. When we think about responses, though, to systems, we often get what I call the three T's. You get training, technology, and tactics. So we'll ban chokeholds or ban street checks. That's the tactic that we won't do anymore. Right. We'll add technology because, you know, body cams will tell the story. Right. And we'll give people more training. Right. But none of that is transformative in, in, in any way. Even when we get to, well, maybe we'll have a know your rights campaign so folks know when their rights are being violated. Why don't we have an equal training with police to say here's the limits of your, the limits of your authority? Yeah. Why do we always have to train the people uh, instead of address the issue that we think you know is really is really happening? So uh, you know, defund is a bit of uh, an important conversation, but it it begs to say, defund to what?
1: Right. Like, like what happens what next? What happens next? Yeah. So, because it's not just. You know, I, I'm reminded of the uh, those Law & Order episodes. I, bum, bum. Yeah. And I have it here. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police, who investigate the crime, and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. It, the offenders being the third group in that whole thing. And these are their stories. And all you kind of have to address it from all points of view at the same time, right? So... It seems to me there's the the offender, which is an mm-hmm. interesting way to categorize everybody. Right. And then there's the police. There's a lot of conversation, as you just mentioned, about yeah. bias and training, and how do you how do you help police do that better? How do you help would be offenders not talk themselves into jail terms? And then there's the broader system of lawyers and judges, and uh, in the United States, a private pr- prison system where. If states don't keep them at a certain percentage percentage of capacity, they actually have to pay the company running the prison a, a fine, which is a weird system that they have to keep so many people in prison. But all you'd have to address all of that together. And there's no way to say, because you just said it, there's no way we're going to say, okay, time out, everybody. We're going to take a break. We're going to fix it. And then we'll start the whole thing up again. You've you've got to do it while it's going and specific isolated interventions aren't enough because they just sort of keep the old system going. So, so so can can I ask so just going back to that, yeah. you know, that law and order
0: <laughs> boom, boom. sentence. Yeah. That, that, I I would just go break it down in the first sentence. Okay. In the criminal justice system. What was the, the people? The people are represented. The people yeah. are represented. Who's the people? Uh voters. I don't know. Doesn't say the victims are represented. It talks about the offender, but it doesn't actually say the people. It doesn't say the victims are represented by two equal. No. you know the police. And no, it says the people. So the state. Yeah. Right now we've li- so in Canada it's not so different. It's the it's the queen versus in the, the U.S. The crown is represented. The by, crown and yeah. So sometimes folks refer to this as sort of the 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 secondary victimization when you're. Victimhood is stolen by the state.
1: Okay, wait a minute. Un- unpack that a little bit. What do you mean? How is victimhood stolen? So, Chris Jarvis breaks into Jake McIsaac's house. Yes. I would never do Police that are... for everybody listening. I would never do that. It's not... I don't have anything worth breaking they, That's for, exactly anyway. why I so would so bother. Right. right. Fair, okay. fair enough. Neighbors, maybe. So, so, yeah, the... Well,
0: if my neighbors are listening. <laughs>
1: That's going to be awkward. <laughs> um, Knock you on so, the door. Hey, uh, listen to the podcast. Really cool. Who's the guy who's going to break it? For- <laughs> Can you never invite him over yeah. for a barbecue? Does he know where you live? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So, so, when you're arrested
0: and you go before the court, yeah. it's not going to be uh, Chris Jarvis uh, versus Jake McIsaac. Right? Yeah. I'm not bringing anything. Right. It's the state against Chris Jarvis. And so maybe I say, ah, I don't want to participate. Like there are some, some things that I say, well, you know what? I'm just going to – I'm going to um, – I'd like to go in a different direction.
1: Like your friend said, like I don't want – I don't want it, Yeah. it to go this way doesn't matter what you want. We're doing this for your protection. Well, and so it becomes this because they really are working for the people, right? They, like the people, the people have been offended. I'm sorry that you experienced this, but now the people are more important than you are. In a way. Yeah. Right. Okay. So
0: when you talk about the people are represented by two equal and important sides or whatever that separate phrase was. Separate yet
1: equally important groups.
0: Separate, but equal, whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, the, the that model, uh, even that sentence, has a whole bunch of layers of what's happening underneath. Like, in order to do that, you, you're propping up also uh, the two separate systems. Is You're introducing the, the notion that there's people, the state, that there's a law and order. All you have to do is go back to Sir Robert Peel's Principles of Policing to understand that. You go back about 200 years... And sort of the genesis of modern day policing, Sir Robert Peel says that basic mission of policing is to prevent crime and disorder. So to prevent rule breaking Mm -hmm. and maintain order. So one of those principles is then, well, how will you know if it's working? So Peel says, well, you'll know it's working if you don't have widespread disorder and rule breaking. Okay. So that sounds right. Like most of us are like, okay, well, I'm, yeah, I'm stay with you so inside far. the
1: lines. Don't hurt other people. Don't steal what their if, stuff. Well, that That's
0: where we start to get it. What if the system's not working? What if the order, what if the current order's not working for everyone? In fact, what if the thing that's being protected is actually inherently structures some folks an advantage and disadvantages others? So then when you have an uprising. Yeah and you have a whole bunch of people that say actually this isn't working for us they're being disorderly
1: well okay cuz right? the foundation of the United States is a bunch of people who didn't want to pay tax without being represented right that's no go to the residents of the district of columbia and they'd say well what about us it's on the license plate i just remember that what about us no no it says no tax <laughs> <laughs> yeah kind of no no taxation without representation because they have no representation but the entire country, uh, basically the entire country was built on this. Britain, we don't care about what you think law and order is. You're pressing us. We want to be free. They were the dominant class. The colonials weren't. And so there was not a lot of law and order in the American Revolution. Right. But yet it seemed completely justifiable to the people who were overthrowing the yoke of oppression. Because
0: the law right. only works... For the dominant power group. And the mechanism to maintain order is pretty consistent over time. It doesn't really evolve punishment. Right. Or fear of punishment. Right. Or consequences. So I start thinking about, well, what are the underlying assumptions required to keep that system moving, to keep that uh, way of thinking that keeps perpetuating that? Okay. So people have to accept it, right? So it has to be working for some people.
1: Or even a lot of people most people most of the time even like i just said Maybe, it only... could
0: could we just use a different word like the majority okay
1: okay okay, okay. good and you know what i just said it for a minute the dom- it only works for the dominant group that that's not necessarily true every once in a while it will play out well for people who may not be identified as by the majority as part of them Mm-hmm. But I would say that, by and large, that's—I um, don't know how to phrase it without sounding like I'm denigrating Law and Order. I'm—I'm I'm not at all. I don't think that's what this no. conversation is about. All we're trying to say is it's built on a, a a model that, if you pull it apart, it's really interesting how it's constructed, and that's the only way to get to a new idea.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. What, we're evolving. If you. We don't practice medicine the same way they practiced medicine in the 1800s. And yet, if you walk into a courtroom now, there's probably a lot of similarities to what it was like in the 1800s, right? Same types of language, same types of
1: laws, the same uh, approach. If you do something, there's a pound of some kind of flesh coming off you and the offense is not necessarily against the victim. It's against the people. Yeah
0: i mean w- we evolved the system to say you could have a victim impact statement you could be heard on the punishment okay. you could be heard yeah. on sentencing maybe we can uh, work in restitution so that you you pay for the window that you smashed out when you broke into my house right and i but what if what if my needs were more complex than that what if when you broke in yeah. it actually stole my sense of security in my home What if every time after I leave my house, I have to double back and grab the doorknob and jiggle it to make sure it's locked? Because when I came home that day and found my door open and my place ransacked, it actually wasn't about the broken window. It wasn't about the way you got into my house. It wasn't, that got picked up with insurance. When I am sleeping in my bed and my dog's bark and I think that someone's coming in, That's what you stole.
1: There's the trauma. There's the the sense of safety and security that you were violated, right? Your space, your safe space. I remember that we came back from a vacation once as a family, and we realized somebody had broken in and stole our VCR and our 2,000-pound television because that's what we had in the (laughs) 80s, right? These poor guys lunging it down the street were picked up (laughs) shortly thereafter. But who cares about any of that? I just thought, anybody can come in here and do whatever they want. Like I'm a little kid, right. I'm 11. That's really, that was the crux of the, the, the experience. Right.
0: So then imagine a system shift where we allowed people to actually hear that, that yeah. the real impact, that the real harm caused was not just about property, but the real harm was what was taken from you in terms of your safety and security, your sense of well-being, all of those kind of things you articulated what if we created safe ways for folks to to hear that, to get that feedback, and then to process it, and then to begin to make it right
1: if they could? Yeah. And you're talking now about instead of retributive justice, you're talking about restorative justice. Right. And yeah, you have some experience exactly. with that.
0: A little bit. I do in terms of responses to uh, wrongdoing, yeah. in terms of a restorative, a restorative approach to justice. So thinking some of the ways that we're talking about it but then to taking uh, a restorative approach more broadly in, in just a way of interacting and connecting with folks and systems and, and setting conditions up before things go wrong. So what would it look like on the every day? Be constantly thinking about not just when things go wrong, about the impact that we have on others and our connections in relation to each other's. but what if we started thinking about that every day? Could that, as a crime prevention strategy, help interrupt... Uh, what could become, like I might not break into your house if I feel connected to you. Mm -hmm. Versus what we're trying to do in restorative justice is help you be connected and maybe you learn and maybe you don't break into someone else's house. So we start to, we start measuring ways like in restorative justice processes. uh, One of the metrics is recidivism, this rate of return to the, to the behavior, to the system.
1: Yeah, offending again, right? Reoffending. Yeah. So. Because well, that's interesting because the restorative approach, the restorative justice approach, um, does take into account the people involved, not only the victim, and I know this from talking to you over the years, but also the offender, yeah. which is important because there is so much new research, especially in the last 10 years, that demonstrates that treating all offenders as rational people who have the same... Cognitive abilities is a yes. major misstep. In fact, and I just I, I have the stats in doing some prep for the show, so we don't just get on and riff. But you know, in the United States, ten times more people with serious mental illness are in prison than in state hospitals. That it, yes, the, we've in the United States basically given the mental health system to prison systems and prison guards. And in the UK, I I couldn't, this stat was stunning. Roughly 90% of offenders suffer from some type of psychiatric disorder. So being caught up into this retributive, you offended the people, now you have to go to jail. And since we're not dealing with people as people, we're dealing with them as cogs in a machine. And when the cog gets out of line, and the machine gets broken, we save the machine by replacing the cog and we throw it into the broken pile these are human beings that are struggling with a whole bunch of neurological psychiatric disorders or, or even addiction I mean we we lock up addicts that's what we do in North America we we put addicts away I think Canada's made some strides to to counteract that a little bit you would know more about that than I, than I do
0: but I, I think in the same way you're you're talking about that we and, and you and I have been talking about this for about twenty years, yeah. um, in some form or another. That people are more than the sum total of their exactly. struggles. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And so I, I, so. I, I, I nice. would say that I, we need this to be yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> for if, if not selfishly, we need this yeah. to be true. Yeah. Um, because in all of the ways that you talked about, the t- types of struggles that lead people. Uh, we are also locking up the successful parts of those humans
1: as well. That is so important. And you and I both know from our work at Sunday Suppers and other things together, or even separately, the names and lives of these people. And it's just an absolute tragedy that they get caught in the system in the heat of the moment, not thinking because their cognitive load was diminished by at least 25%. And they are in a fight and flight situation. They are not being rational at all made decisions, and now the system teach tr- is treating them like absolutely rational decision-makers who, in the moment, made a decision to go outside of the law, and they knew what the consequences were. They did it anyway, so now they have to pay for
0: it. Yeah, in that, in that story, one is a prescribed payment, right, in terms of punishment and deterrence, and, you know, we're doing this to to make you safe. The other is that it's the consequence of the rigid system, that there's no flexibility. I'm sorry, in intimate partner violence, we always press charges. So without any flexibility, without saying, what do you need? And I understand why. I understand the background. And these are situations where dangerous, high likelihood of lethality in intimate partner violence, these are not simple conversations. And you and I would never figure this out in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. But I I do worry that anything that's too rigid, and and it takes away the the flexibility and the, the agency of the person who has been harmed. And it assumes that the person who caused harm, that the only way toward rehabilitation or reintegration is by following this punitive model.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's the only way because it's all we know, and we're both talking about another way that we have both seen, or actually, you've seen firsthand work.
0: Well, I, I, I have, and I usually will start by asking folks who are involved in a process, if I'm facilitating a restorative process. What do you need? What do you? What are your? What do you hope for? Mm-hmm. What would justice look like for you?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And. I've been saying this for many, many years and so I've kind of distilled down to some of the most common types of answers that I've heard. Uh, I want to be heard. Yeah. Right? I want to be heard. I want to be seen. If you broke into my house and I didn't see you break into my house and I didn't witness it and we go to court, I'm probably not going to have a voice in any of that unless it's about identifying that that's my TV, I bought it on this day. But I, I won't have any value to helping the state make their case against you because I wasn't a witness. I, I might be able to, if you're, if you're found guilty, found to be responsible, I might be able to have a voice at sentencing yep. in terms of talking about the impact. But over, overall, I found that in a restorative justice process, many people just say, I want a space to be heard. I want to be heard about, and this is, this is the next part, I, I want to make matter what happened. So it's not just it's not just about validating. It's not giving me space to tell my story. That happens, but I want to help make. I want to understand what happened. So it's I want to be heard, but I also want to hear from another person. Yeah. I, I want you to I want you to explain to me why. And instead of it just being a two-party mediation, in restorative justice processes, often the community is represented, and the community not just a, a random person in the neighborhood. It's often the community seat is represented by the systems and the, the structures. It could be a, other people. If it happened at school, it might be members of the PTA. It might be the principal. It might be the the person who serves in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. It could be the bus driver. Mm-hmm. It could be who in the who in our community cares about this and cares that this goes well and can help make sure that the resolution moves forward in a, in, in a way that matters to all of us. So people want to be heard they want to make matter what happened they want to reduce the likelihood of reoccurrence like that seems to be at least in either system yeah. like no one wants exactly. this to happen again
1: yeah no it's like so, I, look i just don't want to understand why you're breaking in and we had a good conversation but right you're still going to do it and what are you going to do like that's right. that can't so, be the result either
0: so so we 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 both care about the same yeah. thing but in the traditional system or the the, the retributive system we rely heavily on um punishment or at least that to be a deterrent, so that it doesn't happen again. You don't want to come back here. So we say, I will make you sorry instead of create the conditions for you to understand what happened for you to truly feel sorry. And the likelihood of reoccurrence in a restorative model knows that you just saying it shouldn't happen again or you feeling pity or you feeling bad is probably not enough. Mm -hmm. So in order to really address... Whether it's going to happen, have I paid attention to the behaviors, the conditions, and the context surrounding the incident?
1: Context is so important. I, can I give you a story? that? Yeah. Okay. So I, I have not been able to find this study, but I, it, it made a big impact on me when I first read it. Uh, this woman, what they did was they had this uh, cashier at like Whole Foods or something like that. And they were videotaping her, and she was uh, having customers come through the line. And she was kind of abrupt, right? You've you've had this happen to, like, yeah. somebody offering you service. And you're like, hey, how you doing? She's like, she doesn't even look up or answer you. She's just, and then she would say, are both of those watermelons here? Can you put them on the thing then, please? You know, just coming off as rude, not caring, not good at her job. She made a few mistakes. The customer's like, I think that one's on sale. And she would sigh like that and bring it in and they asked the folks it was a group that was watching the video what do you think and they rated her she was mean she should be fired this is inexcusable there's no professionalism here this is unkind the next group that came in they said we want to tell you about the woman you're about to see in the cash she's been dealing with an issue with her child for the last three years and the doctors gave her a call today on the way into work and said sorry There's nothing we can do. Um, You should expect the worst in the next six months. And she went to work anyways because she didn't have a choice, and she's working. And Mm. people are coming through, same video. What did you think? What a hero. I can't believe it. I wouldn't have been able to do that. In fact, they rated some of the customers as rude instead because context set up the opportunity to empathize and ask a really important question what would you do in this situation it wasn't just Mm -hmm. here's a rule you broke the rule we don't care why you are a cog in the machine and you violated the smoothness of the machine and you must pay the price kind of thing context mattered so much in that in that situation
0: This podcast is brought to you by the RW Institute, produced by Daniel Parker, recorded remotely in Los Angeles from Baltimore, Maryland, and Halifax, Nova Scotia. Be sure to subscribe so you can keep up with the conversation. Care to react? Submit your comments at rw.institute or on the comment feature where you're listening now.